Minola, where the bus driver was charged that day with driving a bus the wrong color. After we paid the fine among us, we continued on to Roosevelt, and Reverend Jeff Sonny carried me four miles in the rural area where I had worked as a timekeeper and sharecropper for 18 years. I was met there by my children that told me the plantation owner was angry because I had gone down, tried to register. After they told me, my husband came and said the plantation owner was raising cane because I had tried to register. And before he quit talking, the plantation owner came and said, Fannie Lou, do you know the pap tell you what I said? And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, I mean that, said, if you don't go down and withdraw your registration, you will have to leave. That then if you go down and withdraw, that you still might have to go because we are not ready for that in Mississippi. And I addressed him and told him that I didn't try to register for you. I tried to register for myself. The reunion of the nation, the destruction of slavery, the question of what the status of the four million former slaves would be as free people in American life. One of the first questions that the post-war period has to confront is, who is a citizen, and then what rights attend to citizenship? Who are former slaves going to be in the body politic? grandfather who literally has told me the same stories of what I've experienced today and the fact that I can look at what's going on and see what my grandfather was talking about is not scary but it's appalling um, and the fact that we have a president that can come on national TV and go from talking about uh, people were wrong on many sides and not even acknowledge the young baby who lost her life and result of people who he has notably and, and knowingly incited. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Janice Graham. And good evening and thank you for joining us. This is 
our common ground. Thank you, Bill Quinn, for bringing us always in. We hope that you are seated. We hope that you are relaxed. We hope that good things have happened despite the bad things all week long. We've been a lot of bad political gossip just keeps streaming, just keeps streaming. How are you? I hope that you are well. Um, I am one week out of my second dose of Moderna and uh, had a little creaky peep peep there, part there. But we've got a lot to do tonight. We welcome you. And for those of you who are listening on your devices and you really want to be at home, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. And our administrator, L. Michelle Odom, is will be there to greet you. Thank you so much for, for being with us. You know, we have an awareness, a consciousness that uh, this kind of talk radio uh, has a dying breed to the generation of podcasters, and that's okay. Uh, I have always um, wondered and tried to foster a new generation of people who do this work. So we're all we're all in for all the podcasters, but I will guarantee you that black will never be more honored than it is here in our sanctuary at ground. Evening, El Michelle. Good evening, hard worker, 485. Good to have you in our chat room and have you all ready because tonight at our common ground. You know, I did tell you last week that we were going to have Jabari Hill uh, who is a labor activist and is working very, very hard on the human rights side of labor organizing down in Mississippi and Alabama on the Amazon uh, project. And he and I had a conversation on Wednesday, and uh, we were looking at and anticipating the passage of the PRO Act um, by the House of Representatives, and they approved a bill that would provide protections for workers trying to organize. It is a measure that the labor movement, it's the biggest, the single biggest legislative priority uh, for the labor movement, and the bill did pass on Tuesday with a vote of 225 to 206, with five Republicans joining the Democrats, if we're going to be counting it in that way. So Jabari and I decided that what we need to do is wait to do that discussion as the Senate begins to have its hearing and its markdowns on the bill. So tonight we're having, uh, we're very much having an open night mic, and this is what we're going to try to do. 
we're going to try to look at the new confederacy. Yes, I insist that it is a new confederacy. And examine the question that under the current government, because the new confederacy is part of this government. Uh, It's embedded. It's uh, interwoven. Oh, God, I almost did. My mother almost just spun in her grave. But it is uh, uh, very much the new confederacy. And I have been beating this drum for more than three years now. We we are two months out of the riot and ins the white supremacy riot and insurrection uh on January sixth and on March March sixth uh the House and Senate, the Congress, you know, what did I say last week? Chunked off a piece of cheese. <laughs> and many people I had I had six or eight people tell me that they got their checks, their fourteen hundred dollars already. Amazing. The Treasury was on the case. So <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I'm getting allergies in, in in Florida. But um we decided that we would forego that discussion on what's happening with Amazon because it's going to be a game changer around what the activists and what um, what um, the activists and what the organizers and mobilizers are going to do relative to Amazon. So tonight, we're really asking you to take a look at something that I thought was very important. If you did not catch it, you can go on our website at ourcommonground.com. All of the four lectures by Dr. James Taylor are available there. Um, And there are a number of things that we learned in in that four-week process that I think that we can't continue to pass by. And that is understanding the similarities. I would say it's damn near a mirror of what happened to the descendants of the original slaves who were slaves when they were released from legal bondage. And our government and the way in which a three-party system at that time, considering that the Confederates were also a system at the end of the Civil War, at the beginning of the period what we call Reconstruction, that we have to understand that what has begun over the last three years is the resurgence, the resurgence of that period. So tonight, with an ear to the kind of betrayal that the government is has demonstrated and has the potential 
and the shamelessness and the lack of courage in facing it, two different things on two different sides, we may be caught in the same kind of betrayal. And and tonight we're going to learn uh, to synthesize how we think about that. Uh, We're just 12 minutes into the show, and uh, we have loads of people on our board, and 843 has their has their um, hand up, and I'm wondering who the hell 843, <laughs> I don't have 843 uh, on my list of blocked calls, and I keep a, I keep a list, blocked calls, uh, but we're going to go to the phone just for five minutes before we begin this program. 843, I hope you have a question, problem, or a comment. Uh, yeah, I have a comment. Uh, <clears throat> I'm actually pretty confused. I have a couple points. I'm loving your show. You do a great work. But I am curious. Uh, on the first hand, you denounce the, the government as being white supremacist, but you also praise the, the stimulus checks. Uh, on the other hand, you know, you talk about, in, in essence, critical race theory. Uh, I would like to know uh, what do you what do you think about the Irish slaves and the Chinese slaves? Should they get reparations as well? Um, the the Chinese slaves, uh, the Irish slaves. Yeah, should they get um, reparations? I don't know. You need to go ask them. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm asking you. You you you, you seem to be no sp- no. I'm, you, I'm, need I, you, you need to ask them. You need to ask. Them. That is their I business. I'm in the black business. Okay. So, okay well, okay. Is, is the government ran by is the government ran by white people? Uh, is the government know, ran by white? Is the government? No, no. I'm not gonna you're spend, a strong I'm woman. Not you're a strong woman. You're a strong you. woman. Bye. Okay. Let's get started. Um. So we've got some 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 big some long clips to go through. You know. Let me just say this. It's not my job to inform, educate, or train white people. You you know where he was going. You know, first it's a great show, you do a great work, and then here I go. The other is that we waste too much time trying to have discussion with people who don't have the capacity to listen or learn. You're absolutely right, El Michelle. I can add 843. I wrote it down right on my list. Every night I sit here, every time, every time. Um, So it is not our job. If you are looking to be anti uh, anti racism, if you're looking if you're looking for the white movement, and because you want to break down the barriers of racial division and racial discrimination, go do it in your own community. Call call Hannity, call Tucker Carlson, call Laura Laura whatever her name is that I can't think of. 
And that's not to say that I am anti-white. Well, yeah, that's not to say that I am anti-white. It only means I'm not going to waste my time. My time has to be spent talking to and assisting black people getting through this struggle, getting through this system. Okay. So thank you so much for being with us tonight. Um, And 843, you're on the list. Michelle knows my list. Uh, Alpha has just walked into the room late. So tonight we're going to be looking at the under the new confederacy. Can there be any justice? Let's get started. On the evening of June 17, 2015, a stranger walked into an historic black church in Charleston, South Carolina, known as Mother Emmanuel. He prayed with the Wednesday night Bible study group for almost an hour. Then he opened fire. We have nine victims, and I do believe this was a hate crime. Friends say the 21-year-old high school dropout was a loner, an unabashed racist with a deep hatred for black people. He just said, I have to do it. He said, you rape our women and you're taking over our country. The massacre in Charleston touched off not only a debate over the Confederate flag, but it touched off a debate all over the country. How did we get here and why is this happening? It was easy, I guess, to think of that as a singular horror. And it was convenient, I think, to think of it that way. Unless you really wanted to understand how this could happen. And then that meant that you had to get into the history. Most of us know that our country fought a civil war in the 1860s. But less is known about what came afterward. The chaotic, exhilarating, and ultimately devastating period known as Reconstruction. If we're looking for the roots of the tragedy at Mother Emanuel, this is where we have to start. The Reconstruction period is one of extraordinary excitement. A time when America could finally become that land of freedom that it had promised to be since the very beginning. Black people actually sat in the House of Representatives and the Senate. Poor whites and black people saw a common cause with one another. You're seeing this opportunity and imagining that will only get better. And looking back, what we know is those black folks had no idea of the cliff that they were heading towards. The achievements of Reconstruction triggered a fearsome backlash, an onslaught of terror and depression that lasted for decades. After 250 years of slavery, white Southerners could not quite accept the four million former slaves as equal members of their society. Violence is used in conjunction with Jim Crow in order to strip African Americans of the rights and privileges they gained during Reconstruction. The Charleston Massacre comes from a long history of white terror against African Americans. But Reconstruction left a legacy of hope as well as violence. We have to recognize the injustices that were inflicted, but we can't reduce all history to that injustice. 
people who had been held in perpetual bondage. He confronted the greatest sin of American history straight on. Their hopes were far greater than maybe what any government can accomplish. A system functioning without race being a barrier to equality. We still haven't quite gotten there. Almost a century and a half later, we still find ourselves haunted by the collapse of Reconstruction, a chapter of our history that's often been misrepresented and misunderstood. It's time that we acknowledge the true story and complete the work of reconstructing America. When I was in high school, black history consisted of a few simple facts and a very happy ending. Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. But this was the 1960s. A hundred years after emancipation, black people were fighting for the most basic rights. So what happened to that happy ending? It turns out that wasn't the end of the story. It was just the beginning. April 9th, 1865, Palm Sunday. At the village of Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia, Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered to United States Lieutenant General Ulysses S. Grant. Lee's capitulation effectively signaled the end of the Civil War and the death of slavery in the United States. The news rippled out from Appomattox. A strange woman I'd never seen before came running down where we were all at work. She said as loud as she could, Hey, freedom. You are free. Everybody was getting up his clothes and leaving. They didn't know where they was going. Just scattering around. It was just like opening the door and letting the bird fly out. He might starve or freeze or be killed pretty soon, but he just felt good because he was free. To a remarkable degree, it was the slaves themselves who had helped bring this to pass. From the war's first days, legions of enslaved people defied their masters and fled to Union lines. Others were liberated by the United States Army as it occupied parts of the South. By the summer of 1862, many thousands of slaves had found safe haven. Their brave actions, as much as any other factor, converted President Lincoln and many other Americans to emancipation. When black men were finally allowed to enlist in the Union Army, 180,000 answered the call, most of them former slaves. It was both the manpower that they brought to the Union side and also the denial of their manpower in the production of the Southern economy. There's no question that they strengthened the Union hand militarily and they changed the nature of what a military victory would mean. 
the role of black soldiers, Lincoln said this himself, was essential in ensuring that the war would end with the abolition of slavery. What would the future hold for these freed people? Now untethered, their status as citizens was very much in question, with few legal rights or protections guaranteed. Even so, the prayers of generations were being answered. As Lee and Grant negotiated the terms of surrender, the government in Washington was wrestling with what was being called Reconstruction. On the surface, Reconstruction just meant restoring the rebel states to the Union. In fact, it raised a host of questions. Reconstruction is the process by which American society, North, South, Black, White, tried to come to terms with the consequences of the Civil War, the reunion of the nation, the destruction of slavery, the question of what the status of the four million former slaves would be as free people in American life. One of the first questions that the post-war period has to confront is, who is a citizen and then what rights attend to citizenship? Who are former slaves going to be in the body politic? In parts of the South that the Army liberated during the war, officials have been confronted with issues like education, land ownership, and workers' rights. Even at Appomattox, it was apparent that the North and the South saw Reconstruction quite differently. Grant goes into the negotiations thinking, well, we won, not just militarily, but our principles won. Robert E. Lee comes into it thinking, it shows that you had more men and more cannon than we did. We acknowledge no wrong, and they just talk right past each other, which is one reason it becomes not the end of all this struggle, but in some ways the beginning. These ideas start to accumulate around Appomattox of a merciful coming together of peace. Many iconic images associate this surrender ceremony with Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem, the city of peace, but they don't actually help us understand what happened there at all. Whatever Appomattox is, it's not the start of peace. Two days after Appomattox, Abraham Lincoln spoke about Reconstruction at the White House. For the first time in public, the president suggested that some black men, the very intelligent, and black veterans deserve the right to vote. A man in the audience turned to his companion and said, that is the last speech he will ever make. On April 14, 1865, Good Friday, John Wilkes Booth made good on his threat. The reckoning for America's original sin was just beginning. The early days of freedom were a bewildering mixture of exhilaration and apprehension. But the first order of business was to reconnect with family members who had been torn away by slavery. Information wanted. I had two children sold for me about 10 years ago by a man by the name of Pate. My boy's name was Monroe Early and my daughter's name Mary Early. 
starting in 1865, so shortly after the end of the war, you see people placing ads in newspapers. It really gives a sense of the, the separation that had occurred during slavery. Information wanted of my father, Jerry Hodges of Norfolk County, Virginia. I was sold from him when I was a small girl about 30 years ago. My mother's name was Phoebe, and she belonged to a man named Ashcroft. This moment of emancipation is a serious moment of upheaval. A lot of people are moving about. There are a lot of things that are going on. But for African-Americans, one of their big things is to try to build the lives that they've been thinking about while they're enslaved. People took to the roads trying to find family members. I mean, literally walking to where they had last left family. Information wanted of my children, Lewis, Lizzie, and Kate Mason, whom I last saw in Owensboro, Kentucky. They were then owned by David and John Hart. That is, the girls were. But the boy was rather the property of Thomas Pointer. Imagine keeping this memory of your child or your wife or your husband, your, your father, your mother, alive in your mind and in your heart, and then trying to, to bring about some kind of reunification. But you hardly know where to start. The end of the Civil War brought more questions than answers. Even the status of slavery was unresolved. The 13th Amendment passed Congress in January, but it hadn't been ratified by the states. And what did freedom mean? Could the freed people be citizens? Were they entitled to a role in politics? Could they earn wages in the free market? It was a dangerous time that would have tested the abilities of even the greatest president. Just hours after Lincoln's death, Andrew Johnson was sworn in at a hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue. When Lincoln chose a Southern Unionist Democrat as his running mate in 1864, few imagined that Johnson would ever ascend to the presidency. During Reconstruction, uh, the Republican Party is the party of civil rights. Um, it is the party that uh, promotes a vision of an interracial democracy. The Republican Party is the party of African Americans. Although Johnson was a Southerner and a Democrat, he had opposed secession, even at the risk of his life. Andrew Johnson grew up a poor white Southerner. He believed very strongly that, uh, that the Civil War had been caused by the planter class, the Southern elite and he hated them. But he imagined that the primary victim of the planter class was the class to which he belonged, the poor whites of the South. Andrew Johnson was the first man in this country made president by an assassin's bullet. He wouldn't be shy about using his newly gained power. 
Congress had gaveled out of session in March. They're not coming back till December. Out of session, they're stuck, and Johnson is in the driver's seat. The most famous black man in America, the abolitionist Frederick Douglass, had his doubts about the new president. At Lincoln's second inaugural, Johnson meets with Frederick Douglass. When Johnson realizes that he has to shake a black man's hand, his smile turns into a scowl. Douglass smells the liquor on his breath. He's already drunk at 11 a.m. Douglass says to his friend, no matter what else Andrew Johnson is, he is no friend of the black. Even as the freed people celebrated the death of slavery, Douglass was forced to wonder, in what new skin will the old snake come forth? The freed people long for all of those things that other people enjoy. Things denied them under slavery. The right to marry, the right to make a home, the right to an education, and the right to earn a living. For many, the basis of being truly free was the right to own land. In the summer of 1865, the question of land was very much on the mind of Major General Oliver Howard. That May, Howard had been given one of the most daunting assignments in American history. As the head of a new government agency, the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, Howard was given a few hundred agents and then charged with overseeing the entire transition of Southern society from slavery to freedom. The Freedmen's Bureau was supposed to protect blacks from violence. It was supposed to give them access to education. It was supposed to, in some way, get them access to land. It was supposed to make sure that local courts treated blacks fairly. White Southerners deeply resented the Freedmen's Bureau, even though they were not there to quite protect the former slaves, as to make sure that relations between white and black were fair and equitable on both sides. The federal government never done anything like this. The budget of the Freedmen's Bureau on an annual basis was not much more than what it cost to fight the Civil War for one week. Though having limited resources, what the Freedmen's Bureau had plenty of was land over 850,000 acres of it. And Howard sensibly wanted the freedmen to have use of it. During the Civil War, a lot of land came into the hands of the federal government. Some of it was seized for non-payment of taxes. Some of it was just abandoned by planters who fled when uh, the Union Army appeared. The Freedmen's Bureau was to oversee this land. At the end of July, General Howard ordered his agents to begin renting out 40-acre plots. The freedmen would have three years to buy the land outright. Of course, this phrase, 40 acres and a mule, was picked up by African-Americans all around the South. Many people thought this is a blueprint for Reconstruction. But within weeks, Howard's plans were in trouble. Johnson's Reconstruction plan, which he put forward in May of 1865, basically gave amnesty to most white Southerners who would take an oath to the Union and also accept the end of slavery. But 
He said those who own $20,000 worth of property before the war are not going to be covered by a blanket pardon. They have to come and get an individual pardon from the president. Johnson also began setting up new state governments in the former Confederacy. President Johnson had a very soft uh, version of Reconstruction, almost like a restoration of the Southern states. White Southerners have to accept the fact that slavery is dead. But other than that, Johnson was giving them a free hand in keeping the black population under control. Many Republicans worried that Johnson was undermining the result of the war. But there wasn't much they could do because Congress was in recess. Johnson felt that he could handle Reconstruction perfectly well and it would all be done by the time Congress came back into session in December 1865. In May, Andrew Johnson decreed that wealthy rebels would only be pardoned if they appealed in person to him. All through the summer of 1865, a steady stream of prominent Southerners, the very people Johnson loathed, called at the White House to beg the president's forgiveness. This was a poor boy who was not recognized among the elite class when he was in Tennessee. People that he had hated are now coming to him and asking for pardons, and he liked it. By the end of the summer of 1865, many of the former Confederates who took the South out of the Union have received presidential pardons, which means they are back in American society. They could vote. They get to make whatever laws they want. And there's nothing you can do about that. In September, Johnson ordered Howard to restore almost all of the lands in the hands of the Freedmen's Bureau back to the Confederates he had pardoned. It fell to Oliver Howard to go and inform free people that they were probably going to have to start entering into labor contracts with, in many cases, their former owners. Howard knew he had to deliver this devastating news in person in places like Edisto Island on the South Carolina coast. They could not believe it, and so they refused to leave. The free people start shouting, no, no, and then an old woman starts singing, nobody knows the troubles I've seen, and everyone in this church starts singing that song. And Howard is just devastated. The Edisto Islanders desperately appealed directly to the president. We were the only true and loyal people that were found in possession of these lands. We have always been ready to fight if needs be to preserve this glorious union. Will the good and just government take from us all this right and make us subject to the will of those who have cheated and oppressed us? We look to you in this trying hour as a true friend of the poor and neglected race. Their plea went unanswered. The United States had the opportunity at that time to make amends for centuries of enslavement. The United States had the opportunity to make it possible for the formerly enslaved people to be economically independent. And the country failed to do it. By not redistributing that land, it consigned most of them to a dependence that remained for decades afterwards. And we're still dealing with the fallout from that.
How'd you get involved with this, uh, the planning of this monument? More perhaps than anyone else, historian Eric Foner has brought the truth about Reconstruction to light. We visited the newly dedicated Reconstruction-era National Monument in Beaufort, South Carolina. This area was almost like a, a, a test case. Could these former slaves really be free people? Mm -hmm. Could they learn? Could they work as free people? Not everybody knew what the answer was going to be, but they, they, you know, they proved themselves in Buford, and it actually therefore had an impact on Reconstruction as it developed. You've written what many of us think is the Bible on Reconstruction. You've written 10 books on Reconstruction. You're going to write an 11th on the Reconstruction Amendments. To what do we attribute your fascination? You know, the ferment at the local level in Reconstruction, which really I think is the big story, how the end of slavery upends everything, mm -hmm. and a new system has to be created, a new economic system, a new political system, a new legal system. You know, slavery was a total institution. Mm -hmm. When that's gone, you've got to build a new society. And one of the barriers, of course, was the tremendous legacy of anti-black racism. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Racism, which is the deepest legacy of slavery, really, in our society, mm -hmm. um, you know, it would be nice, but one can't very well expect that the legacy of racism would just be sloughed off because slavery ended. Didn't happen, and that was a tremendous barrier to change. Mm -hmm. In 1866, a Richmond journalist published a book called The Lost Cause. He argued that the war was, in reality, a gracious southern civilization defending itself against northern aggression, an idea that resonated deeply among the defeated white southerners. One has to remember that the white south suffered a devastating loss of life in the Civil War, something really without parallel in American history. The South is devastated. People are literally starving. They had destroyed their economy. They had torn their families apart. It was hard to see any real meaning in what the Confederacy had done. I think people wanted to find something to hang on to. Many former Confederates stubbornly clung to the belief that their cause had been just. That whole lost cause myth developed out of the idea that the only reason why they were fighting at all was because the North was trying to suppress their rights. For the Confederacy, the war was absolutely about slavery, first, last, middle. All we have to do is look at the ordinances of secession, the debates in the various state legislatures, private letters, they're all talking about slavery as the cornerstone of their civilization. The Confederate Constitution was very, very clear in terms of the role of slavery in its society. Number one, that it shall in fact be perpetual. And number two, if the nation expands, slavery goes with it. Looking back almost a century later, a Southern writer noted only at the moment when Lee handed Grant his sword was the Confederacy born. 
One of the things that's often forgotten is that many white Southerners did not want to fight for the Confederacy, had never supported secession in the first place. But with the end of the war, it becomes possible to imagine a kind of unified Confederacy as it recedes. The Confederacy in many ways has had far more of an active life after Appomattox than it did before. After Appomattox, it was just a fantasy. It was a dream of what that nation could have been. Some people coped with defeat by mythologizing slavery. Others tried to recreate it. In November of 1865, the government that Andrew Johnson had set up in Mississippi passed a set of oppressive laws that applied only to African Americans. Soon, other southern states followed suit. These laws became known as the Black Code. The basic purpose of the Black Codes was to recognize that slavery has been abolished, but to make sure that there is as little change from slavery to freedom as possible. The key to the Black Codes was what they called vagrancy laws, things like that. Every adult black person was required to sign a labor contract for the year with a white employer. If they didn't do that, they would be considered a vagrant and they could be fined and if they couldn't pay the fine they could be auctioned off to someone who would pay the fine and then they'd have to work off the fine for that person. What's even worse than being arrested if you don't have a job is having your children taken away. So your neighbor down the road can go to the courts and say, John Jones, you know, he can't take care of his children. He's indigent, but I'll take them in. And I will train them in farming methods. So I'll train the daughters in housewifery. And I will have their labor. And the parents will get a little bit of money at the end of their period of indenture. But black parents didn't have a say in this. A lot of parents are fighting back and saying, no, they don't want their children to be apprenticed. They can take care of them. They also know that in apprenticeship conditions, they can't protect their children from physical and sexual abuse. It becomes a way for the planter class to continue stealing the labor of the children and sometimes stealing the children themselves. Enforcement of the Black Codes went hand in hand with relentless violence against the freed people. Outside of cities and towns, the Union Army was shrinking rather than expanding. You're looking at former slaveholders who can't imagine living in a world where slavery doesn't exist if the Union Army is not on the ground and the Freedmen's Bureau is not there to enforce the new rules. Then they were going to do whatever they could to keep the African-American population in a state of subordination. The Ku Klux Klan is created in Tennessee in 1866. It coincides with the creation of black codes. You could argue that on some levels that the, the Klan is doing the same thing that the um, slave patrols did. During slavery, the slave patrols would make sure people have passes, uh, making sure that they are not um, loitering. 
They're not uh, getting together in bands of people. And the Klan is going to uh, do the same type of thing. You have people who are targeted because they've managed to acquire a decent amount of land. Or their children are in school and a white person in their community is struggling at the same time. What they decide is that the way to deal with this is to attack the person, to take away everything they have, to destroy their property, to run them off their land. At war's end, Frederick Douglass had wondered what new form slavery might take. After six months of Andrew Johnson's reconstruction, the answer was painfully obvious. And I know that that was a very long clip, but I, I just understood that in to order to in order for us to see our mirror in 2020 and 2021 and 2019, 2018, that we really had to understand what happened after the emancipation, after the war, who we were as a people and what we faced in our coming. To freedom, because if let me let me kind of break it down. And for those of you who have just joined us, thank you so very much for doing so. Tonight we're talking about how we are going to survive under the new Confederacy, because any historian will tell you about the Reconstruction period, about the slavery era, that. Uh, about the Civil War era and Reconstruction that the South promised that the Confederacy would rise again. And I think for us to be uh, well-informed activists, well-informed observers, about the politics that are that is happening in our country today we have to understand the kind of political compromise that has always been made and that we have always been the victim um tonight we revisit the political betrayal in our history, and I have, I do have more, more information, more historical perspective for you, with the historical fa- uh, facts, and that history ushered out a period of Reconstruction and created hundreds of years of Jim Crow and oppression of Black people, attempting to essentially snuff out our hopes of freedom as a people. And it struck me during uh, the four-week series, lecture series by Dr. Taylor, the brilliant Dr. Taylor, and his presentation of a history of black political movements in America, while when uh, our project as we marked uh, Black History Month 2021 
what of that period of the first reimagining of enslaved black people did we learn? That we cannot continue to go through one period of struggle to another period of struggle to another period of struggle unless we learn and we informed how we respond, how we behave, how we organize, how we mobilize by that history. Um, What do we understand of the reformation of this new confederacy embedded throughout America today? Um, one of the things that strikes me about what we tolerate, QAnon, white supremacists, very, very clearly embedded in our Congress. And the way that I would look at it, and our number is 347-838-9852, and I'll take your call, if you want to discuss this. And the way that I have kind of broken it down, and it was really troubling throughout the four-week um, series of, uh, with, Dr., with Dr. Taylor, is that we had a first reconstruction. And the first reconstruction, I mean a second reconstruction, and the second reconstruction was the civil rights era. And there was so much betrayal by our government and people who made decisions, including what Dr. Leggett pointed out last week, are the black political elites, that that reconstruction, the second reconstruction, which was the civil rights era, uh, was beleaguered by the Reagan administration, the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, and the Obama administration, just simply based upon the kind of political machination, the kind of political political massage on the issue of both civil rights, human rights, and a distortion of the historical factors that brought us to that period. That's the second Reconstruction. The Second Civil War really was announced, uh, pronounced, during the Trump administration. And now we are in a period of the third reconstruction. So and 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 you can look at all the marks from the first reconstruction and the second reconstruction. When you look at our government's response to the murder and killing and 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 cover by imminent um immunity, murder under law, 
the lack of urgency by this country and its judiciary to insist that justice is equal. It's just plain and simple. In this period of Reconstruction, uh, in the Civil War, right after the Civil War, which came on the heels of the election of Donald Trump, as I assess it, is the idea that they that there would be a weaponization and a politicalization of the United States Supreme Court, which had been a bulwark in the second reconstruction. So it it just seems to me sometimes I think about it and I'll take your calls and your responses to it at 347-838-9852 that if we really study this period of history, we understand that this is simply wash, rinse, repeat, wash, rinse, repeat. Um, Though we have had some individual um, victories, our number is 347-838-9852. If you've just joined us, we are our common ground. And we are looking at Under the new confederacy, can there be any kind of justice for the descendants of the American chattel slave system? Do we see, in our assessments of uh, January 6th, the Capitol riots and insurrection, that mirrors how the government sacrificed the rights and humanity of the former slaves in the first Reconstruction? And do we understand the depth and the gravity of the potential of repeating the same kinds of betrayal? Let me make my point. Georgia, Iowa, the most transient vile voter suppression legislation just this week passed. So do we, uh, do we suffer or, or do we uh, somehow accept, uh, tolerate that we're going to repeat this history? I don't know. And the question is, What are we going to do as the states recognize and begin to weaponize states' rights against a federal government that wants to abolish slavery? Because that's the question. That's the question that that passes through all of this right now. Um. We're going to take a break. 
uh, oh, well, why don't we take a call? And it has to be a very short call because we're going to take a break. And there's so much more of this lesson that we have to learn. And for those of you who did not uh, sit in on the four-part lecture, uh, we really highly recommend it. It's on our website. It's also at Blog Talk Radio On Demand. 312, you're on the air. Thank you for your call. Hey, Janice. How are you tonight? Hey, house music lover. Good to hear from you. I heard you a little bit Me last too. night on the Alpha show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I think I have established that I am the closer of the Alpha show now. So. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> But I'm here. I'm here early for you tonight. <clears throat> um, you know, you bring up um, um, you know that clip. Those clips are great. The history is great. Um, well, what did you say? Uh, uh, wash, rinse, repeat. Was that it? Wash, rinse, repeat. So, yeah, this this question is like, I don't know. It's a big word for me. Is this paradoxical? Is this I mean, uh, I mean, yeah. So that's a really hard question. Um, are we waiting for a breaking point? You know, you you mentioned the the new voting laws, the voter suppressing law, suppression laws that uh, these states are mm-hmm. trying to pass right now. Um, are we waiting for a breaking point in regards well, to know, what happened what on the 6th of January? Yeah. Yeah. What what is interesting uh, in all and as you bring up the uh fight against the voter as I think of the fight against the voter suppression laws. This government has simply uh, assigned its responsibility to a woman named Stacey Abrams and a woman named mm-hmm. Latasha Brown. It's like, mm-hmm. "Oh yeah, Stacey's taking care of that." Yeah. Because, as I mentioned on the Alpha show last night, because Alpha let me talk, um, that these states are working these laws, which they know have no constitutional muster under their existing laws. They're working these laws in Georgia and Iowa, Wisconsin, I heard that, that something's coming up in Pennsylvania. It's all the uh, states that the Republicans can win in. Um, Texas. That, uh, Texas. That they're wanting to get this, these issues of uh, cutting down how people can vote by mail, of cutting down weekend voting, of cutting down, and 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 pretty soon it's going to be how many uh, poll uh, poll locations you have to have, blah 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 blah, and they want to get this before the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court is now the weapon. Hmm. I heard you say that last night too, and whew, yeah, that's um. But that that'll be another breaking point, though. I think that's going to be my thing yeah, but, for the call. But here, here, here's 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 my concern as a 
grandmother and as an elder in the community. Here is my concern. My concern is that it takes much more to undo something than to stop it from being done. <sighs> and Hart Parker in the chat room has just, I, I, I had it somewhere in my notes here, um, that Republicans have rolled out a tidal wave of voter suppression laws this week in 43 states. 253 restrictive bills in 43 states this week. Mm-hmm. Passed. Passed. Because the new, you know, I, 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 you know, um, when I was a panther, one of the things I was always talking about is that they're going to snuff us out. If we don't get the work done, they're going to snuff us out. And people were saying, "Oh, you're young. You're, you know, you're, you know, uh, you're you're overreacting. You're overthinking things." Well, they did snuff us out. So, well, I'm thinking that people not like you, house music lover, but I'm 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 really thinking that people are looking at me sad eyed and saying, "What are you talking about? The new Confederacy? This is the new Confederacy." Mm-hmm. These people and, and 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 we have white supremacists operating in our government. We have white supremacists. I mean, look at what Ron Johnson said today. Ron Johnson, without any yep. shame. Did you hear about that? Yeah, openly and freely. Yeah, I heard about it. Openly and freely said he wasn't scared of the white people who rioted at the Capitol, but if they had been black, he'd have been uh, terrified. Yeah, that's exactly what those weren't his words exactly, but that's exactly what we have. We have a House of Representatives parliamentarian and sergeant of arms who is afraid to tell members of the Congress you have to go through and be checked for the metal detector or you won't come into this building. Mm -hmm. I worked for the federal government for, for damn near 25 years. You can't go into any federal building without going since 9-11, since without going through the metal detector. Employees, uh, citizens, vendors, nobody. But the sergeant of arms, they're scared of the Congress people who are, who are jumping the turnstile and acting all foolish. And we tolerate that. And that's why I'm asking the question, can there be any justice? Under this new confederacy, so I'll let you close. Republicans, <laughs> uh, Republicans have been playing the long game, you know, since uh, what was the the start of the the second Reconstruction, said civil rights era. So we can say uh, 64, 65, Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act when that got passed. 
They've been playing a long game since then. Um, mm-hmm. And they that long game consisted of finding the faults where they went wrong, fixing them, putting people in place um, to be triggered when they needed to be triggered to do what needed to yeah. be done. And let's say all that happened with Donald, the culmination was Donald Trump and his election and everything he did those four years, the new attack, um, January 6th. Um, and even before that, as far as the voting um, is concerned, the dismantling of the Voting Rights Act and that, what was it, preclearance, um, which is allowing them to do what they're doing now, well, at least in some states. I don't think Iowa was part of that, but uh, certain states, Georgia, Texas would have been. Um, so, like you say, they can get it up to the Supreme Court and have the coffin That's nail right. shut at that That's court. Right. So they have empowered the federalist society. They have empowered. I mean, with with here's what my response is from what you're saying is that every kind of political corruption and political corruption and manipulation, every kind of violation of their constitution has occurred over the last 12 years. Clearly. They used to do it in the shadows. They don't do it in the shadows anymore. And not one of the people who asked me for my vote has ever challenged it you know as much as as much as i admire white house from rhode island he talks about dark money he talks about white supremacy in the congress he talks about white supremacy in public policy he talks about the violations the violations of american people about what this senate under under Uh, Obama and Trump, how they operated. But not Mm -hmm. one of them has legally challenged, not a group, no caucus, no nothing. So I'm going to let you close because I got to go to a break and then I got to go get through another um, clip. Because it's okay. so well, important for us to understand this history. Well, uh, real cool, uh, quick, then uh, we should have been playing a long game a long time ago. And one of my complaints about uh, bringing up an alpha was that it doesn't seem like there's any plan in place, short term or long term. It's just a mm-hmm. matter of patching these holes that that created in this structure. So mm-hmm. whether we get a long term plan. Um, or just settle for the short-term goals, um, or we just end up with this breaking point, and then everything goes uh, crazy, and we put the pieces back together. Then uh, well, I don't everything know the has to, gone crazy. Like, yeah. So. Thank you, uh, house music lover, and I'm always uh, glad to hear from you. Um, Thanks, Janice. Bring some. Um, bring in some calm. You always bring me calm. 
I'm going to put you back on mute. Thank you all for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. Uh, We've got a lot of stuff to get through, um, and um, I'm just hoping that by learning this understanding, uh, this confusion, we can get through it. Congress was actually listening to black people testifying about the atrocities committed against them. I was elected to the legislature. They offered me 2,500 cash if I would let another man go to the legislature in my place. I told him I would not go back on my people. 65 came to my house. My little daughter came out and begged them not to carry me away. They drew up a gun and threatened them. I may say that they hit me 5,000 blows. Some of them are the first class men in our town. One is a lawyer, one a doctor, and some are farmers. My little daughter never got over it until she died. I have never got over it yet. It broke something inside of me. The hearings are open and public. Women showed up at those hearings, and it took a lot of courage for them. They could face retaliations by the KKK. But they want the world to know what had been done to them. All the time I was planting my crop, they worried me about if they ever saw me, they would hurt me. Whites are really attacking Hannah and her family because they had been too successful. It's jealousy. It flies in the face of the idea that blacks are inferior. Five men bulge right against the door. George McCray catched the little child by the foot and slinged it out of my arms. He carried me to a party, tied my hands left, pulled off all my linens. They said, God damn you, you are living on another man's premises. I said, no, I'm living on my own premises. I gave 150 for it. They whipped me from the crown of my head to the soles of my feet. Every time they would go off, George McCray would get his knee between my legs. Say, old lady, if you don't let me have to do with you, I will kill you. He said, God damn you, I'm going to kill you. There are 8,000 pages of testimony given by everyday Americans. This is a haunting tale of American history and something that we don't talk about enough. Violence has always been here and goes side by side in American history to the creation of a white supremacist racial ideology that has driven us from slavery all the way to the present day. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more. What is that? Oh, that? It's my time machine. Does it work? Sure. Just hit this button. Dinosaurs, cool. 
Or we can go here. Hey, that's Napoleon. Me. Or we can go to the future. Wow, hey, you have this nice house. Do I have a nice house? No, you didn't save any money, always spent it on vacations and stuff. If only there was a way I could go back in time and correct that bad habit. Yep. Okay, the time machine is not real, but the saving thing is. Get in the habit of putting some of your money in savings each week through a 401k, savings account, or financial investment. Put away a few bucks, feel like a million bucks. For free ideas and easy tips on saving, go to feedthepig.org. That's feedthepig.org. What does this crazy little button do? This message brought to you by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Ad Council. You don't see this coming? You don't see this narrative coming as they force another jet fight? As they... The best of political talkback. Common sense. Right from the concrete. Urban, progressive, politics. 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 Friday night at TruthWorks Network. 10 p.m., Alpha drills down deep the lies, the conspiracies in politics. It's just damn politics. The Alpha Show. And we want to remind you that Alpha is at TruthWorks Network each Friday night, 10 p.m. I uh, do want to cover some of the COVID uh, information that you should know, and we hope that you are staying safe, that uh, we are continuing to protect ourselves from this pandemic. As of March 12th, there have been 64,177 additional cases uh, recorded by the CDC. Um, 1,707 additional deaths from March 11th to March 12th. And there are currently 42,254 people um, hospitalized in America um, infected by the virus. In regard to the vaccinations, uh, 68.9 million people have uh, had the first dose of uh, the two parts and 36.9 million people have been fully vaccinated. We hope that you will continue to follow a protocol in regard to the protection of you, your family, and your community. And have some hard conversations with people about what they intend to do in terms of uh, their safety and their surety against uh, the um, against the pandemic. Uh, excuse me for a minute. I'm about to um, um, do some stuff here. Um, 
and ban. I'm not. I'm. I'm not going for the. I'm just simply not going um, to um, to tolerate certain kinds of discussions in the chat room. This chat room is a sanctuary for black people, and you come in here and you talk crazy and you get thrown out. The other thing I want to say to all of you, and you have, some of you have been with me since uh, her birth. Tomorrow, my grand princess celebrates her 28th birthday. And if she's listening, I want to wish her a very happy birthday. And a, it is a joyous occasion in my heart to see her uh, transverse the universe, and the sun one more year and to wish her the best in her new year. Also, today is the first anniversary of the death of Breonna Taylor. There has been no justice for her as well. Um, The trial this week, last week started with a jury selection of seven jurors in the case of Daniel Chauvin. And I want to join with everybody else. Please do not call this the George Floyd trial. George Floyd is not on trial. He didn't do anything. He was the victim. This is the Daniel Chauvin trial. So... You know, let's be cognizant of how we use language because, you know, the people will, uh, I'm I'm just going to leave it at that. Don't forget that tonight after you leave this broadcast when we are um, signing off, you spring forward. You lose an hour. Doesn't matter to me. Uh, I am such a, I've had such sleep problems. Um, I started taking melatonin this week because I'm having three and four nights of going to bed at 6 o'clock in the morning. Um, So I really don't have any sleep. I don't know. It's hard to explain. If you all can call me up at 347-838-838. Nine eight five two and explain it to me. Um, I, I just simply can go twenty four hours without sleeping. The other thing is something that struck me in the news today, um, and may the force be with him. Marvelous Marvin Hagler, at the age of sixty six, died today. His family, there's a rumor that he died as a result of taking the COVID. I shouldn't even I shouldn't even say this, but that he died as a result of taking the COVID vaccine. But that's just a rumor. His family is not saying that. Um, Hegler was um, a, just a huge figure in his hometown of Brockton, Massachusetts, where I served as my agency's um, representative with the local government, and uh, they just loved him. They had a a huge statue at 
the new um, the renovation of the of the uh, new city part of the city hall. So we hope that all of you are well. We we are asking you to uh, make sure uh, that uh, you keep yourself safe. That um, we have a mind to where are we on the front line. And tonight at our common ground, we are revisiting uh, a period of reconstruction, which was so important, the first reconstruction, um, to understand and inform how we be, how we begin to grasp, to analyze, to assess where we are today. Our number is 347, and after... This clip, I'll take your calls and your responses. And um want to thank everybody in our chat room um, for being with us tonight as well. So in this clip, we're, we're still looking at what was happening and what was the response uh, during the beginning of the Reconstruction period going into Jim Crow. President Grant easily won re-election, but the campaign revealed growing fault lines in the Republican Party. Grant faced a renegade liberal Republican movement that was critical of the mainstream of the Republican Party. They're good government types who are very upset by the scandals that have been exposed in the Grant administration. Credit Mobilier was basically a phony company that was set up to provide financing for the Pacific Railroad project, and it laundered money. It made lots of money for corrupt individuals. The difficulty is that those corrupt individuals were often members of Congress. Grant is personally quite honest, but he seemed blind, credulous, almost childlike to the presence of unscrupulous people. Corruption is as American as apple pie. And if we find it in the Grant administration and the Reconstruction South, that's not because Reconstruction was inherently corrupt. It's because corruption happens. You could almost make a bumper sticker out of it. Liberal Republicans are also adopting more of a states' rights position now. We can't just keep intervening in the South. And nominated their own candidate for president, Horace Greeley the editor of the New York Tribune, a long-standing anti-slavery advocate. Really made this famous statement that he's confident that masses of our citizens north and south are eager to clasp hands across the bloody chasm that divides them. The split in the Republican Party is the harbinger of a retreat from Reconstruction. Support for Reconstruction was waning in the North, where many had grown weary from the growing cost of peace. In this environment, black legislators became targets of scorn, ridicule, and anti-black racist propaganda. Derogatory images of African Americans become more and more prominent in the 1870s. Even someone like Thomas Nast, 
who was a very vocal advocate for African-American political rights during Reconstruction, used his artistry with Harper's Weekly to depict the African-Americans in South Carolina, for example, where they have a black majority in the most vile ways. James Pike, a Republican, works on the New York Tribune, publishes this book called The Prostrate State. South Carolina is under the rule of barbarism, incompetence. He has a famous passage in which he's describing really buffoons. Those who are not buffoons are corrupt or incompetent. He hammers again and again and again on almost animalistic stereotypes of field workers to say, really? Are these the people you want to have in charge of your government? Passing laws that suck tax dollars out of hardworking Americans? No. And in fact, we're pretty sure they shouldn't be parts of polite American society at all. They perpetuate an idea that Reconstruction has effectively failed and that the federal government and the Republican Party needed to cut its losses and remove itself from the South. Leave the Negro to those who know him best. White Southerners. As enthusiasm for Reconstruction dwindled in the North, Democrats felt emboldened to intensify their counter-revolution throughout the South. Year after year, election after election, they would not relent. In 1873, amidst the fallout from a fiercely contested election in Louisiana, black Republicans in the town of Colfax staged an armed occupation of the courthouse to prevent Democrats from taking over the Perry seat. White paramilitary organizations surround the courthouse with artillery. The white vigilantes offer guarantees of safe conduct. If you will come out, if you will surrender yourselves, the white vigilantes line them up and execute them. It's nothing more than pure, unadulterated murder. The United States Attorney in Louisiana, under the Enforcement Acts, is responsible for the arrest of over a hundred of the white vigilantes. However, Louisiana juries turned out to be extraordinarily reluctant to convict. Only three convictions are obtained. White Southerners made it difficult for the Republicans and Northerners to enforce Reconstruction policy. The organized white supremacist groups were trying to make the cost of federal intervention higher than the federal government was willing to bear. In state after state, increasingly organized societies, paramilitary clubs, white leagues, claim control of public places. John Roy Lynch, now a congressman, was targeted when he returned home to Mississippi to campaign. At Fayette, they paraded the streets, yelled, fired cannon. Each club had a wagon with fodder. Colored men said these wagons contained guns. Democrats all gathered around the place. I took the stand. 
they commenced to yell at the top of their voices so as to drown out every word I attempted to utter. Southern whites were attempting to take the South back, the red shirts and the knights of the white camellia. That's essentially what the the so-called redemption movements were. They are the ones who are defending the right order of things in civilization, that white people control black people, and that's the way it should be. The brutal violence was accompanied by a major economic downturn, the first since the end of the war. It was known as the panic. Banks and railroads were at the center of the storm, but soon it spread to every corner of the economy. The panic of 1873 has enormously destructive influences through the economy, north and south. A really devastating impact is political. Northern Republicans lose election after election in the midterms of 1874 to Democrats who promise first to save the economy, but also to end Reconstruction in the South. Democrats achieve a majority in the House of Representatives for the first time since the Civil War. Democrats also gain control of state governments in Alabama, Texas, and Arkansas. Reconstruction's future was perilous. But the fight wasn't over. In 1874, congressional districts with majority black populations elected leaders like Robert Smalls and John Lynch. They would face stiff opposition as members of the minority party. The Democratic majority in the House of Representatives means no more money for Reconstruction initiatives. So if there will be political troubles around election time, if the Ku Klux Klan will suddenly reawaken and begin intimidating voters at the polls, murdering black people on the roads, night riding to terrorize blacks into submission, there will be no initiative coming out of Washington. Was there a sense of desperation because of the reversal of the 1874 election? What had been a 100-seat majority for Republicans turned into roughly an 80-seat majority for Democrats mm-hmm. coming into the new Congress. We had a, a long lame duck session of about three months. Mm-hmm. The clock is ticking. African Americans know that this is really probably going to be the last shot at a far-reaching civil rights bill. It prohibited discrimination in public transportation, juries, public accommodations such as hotels, and public education. Immediately when the civil rights bill came to the floor, Southern Democrats and Northern Democrats alike railed against the bill. They believed that it was unconstitutional. Opponents of the bill thought the U.S. government had no business telling the proprietors of restaurants or the people who run railroads who they could admit. These are private businesses and they can decide who their clientele is. The critics believed that it was not about non-discrimination. They saw it as about social equality. And their view is that social equality could not be legislated. It couldn't be enforced. It shouldn't be imposed. This is pushing integration that is unnatural. You're going to force a white person to ride next to a black person. The next thing you know, 
you're going to force a white person to have a black person over for dinner or interracial marriage. So they were apoplectic about the idea that they had to protect their whiteness and in particular protect their white women against this exposure um, to African Americans. Near the end of the first full day of debate, most members were given 20 minutes each to speak. And Alexander Stevens of Georgia, former Confederate vice president, stood up feebly because he was confined to a wheelchair and requested a full hour to speak. And Republican leadership agreed as long as Robert Brown Elliott also had a full hour to provide his rebuttal. Stevens, leaning precariously on a big stack of papers, gives this long, monotone, prepared speech in which he goes over the unconstitutional arguments for the Civil Rights Bill. When he sits down, it's late. George Hoare of Massachusetts says, well, you know what, maybe we won't have Elliot speak today. Maybe he can go first thing tomorrow. And that may have been strategic because word got out that Robert Elliot was going to provide the rebuttal to the former vice president of the Confederacy. The next day when Elliot takes the floor, the galleries are packed with African-American observers. Reporters had shown up, and the whole chamber is just filled with people. Elliot gives this really booming delivery. The constitution of a free government ought always be construed in favor of human rights. I cannot and I will not forget that the welfare and rights of my whole race in this country are involved. The race whom he spurned and trampled on are here to meet him in debate and to demand the rights which are enjoyed by their former oppressors. When Elliot finishes, the whole room erupts into booming applause. People line up to shake his hand. This is a real symbolic moment. The old planter class appears feeble and on its way out. And this dark-skinned, suave, intelligent African-American man represented the way forward. Congress passed the Civil Rights Act, but there was a clause that was stripped from the final act, and that was about education. Americans were not ready for that kind of equality in education yet, and apparently wouldn't be for many, many more years. While Congress managed to get the Civil Rights Act of 1875 across the finish line, another branch of government blunted the reach of the 14th Amendment. In 1876, the Supreme Court announced its ruling in United States versus Crookshank. The appeal of the three white men convicted of murdering African Americans guarding the courthouse in Colfax, Louisiana. The decision which is handed down in Crookshank is one of the most remarkably feeble-minded and disastrous decisions that a United States Supreme Court has ever handed down. And the reasoning ran like this. The 14th Amendment was only intended to restrain states from depriving U.S. citizens of the privileges and immunities that they're supposed to enjoy. But what went on in the Colfax Massacre uh, first of all, was not a state action. It was not the state of Louisiana. But this was, in fact, merely individuals. It was a local crime. Private violence is the business of the state. And if they are not taking care of it, that's just too bad. Mobs of whites decide to kill you, 
have you been denied your right? Well, the Supreme Court decided that you've not been denied your right if you were murdered, as long as it's just private individuals, whether individually or collectively, that are interfering with your rights. That's not a federal case. Well, the Cruikshank decision didn't close the door on possible future prosecutions. It narrowed the pathways for enforcing the 14th Amendment. But it stood between the redeemers and their ultimate goal, which was terrorize African Americans so completely that across the South, hundreds of thousands who had been registered and had been politically active would be reduced to a few hundreds in many of the jurisdictions that they once actually dominated. Grant saw that support for Reconstruction was eroding, so he decided to pull back on military interventions in the South to enhance his party's chances in the North. With the next presidential election months away, Washingtonians, black and white, came together to honor a past president, Abraham Lincoln. For one man, the occasion afforded an unprecedented national platform for a call to action. On April 14, 1876, this plaza near Capitol Hill was teeming with people, including members of both houses of Congress, the Supreme Court justices, and the President of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant. The crowd had gathered here on the 11th anniversary of Lincoln's assassination to witness the unveiling of this monument honoring his crowning achievement, the Emancipation Proclamation. The most memorable words spoken that day were those of Frederick Douglass. Truth compels me to admit even here in the presence of the monument, Abraham Lincoln was not our man. He was preeminently the white man's president. You are the children of Abraham Lincoln. We are best his stepchildren. To you, it especially belongs to preserve and perpetuate his memory and commend his example. When he says Abraham Lincoln was a white man's president, you go, whoa, that is an amazing thing to say in front of the most powerful politicians in the republic in the year 1876. It's shocking. Yeah, it's uh, presidential election year, it appears. The Reconstruction is unraveling. He used this opportunity to make a speech about the responsibility of the U.S. government, which was sitting right in front of him, <laughs> to hold together whatever was left of Reconstruction if they could. There's this understanding in 1876 that blacks have all the rights now that they should expect. We have the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. The Republican Party, it's become a party of large financiers, corporate men, and captains of industry. Now let's focus on the economy. When Republicans cast around for a likely candidate, Rutherford B. Hayes seems to be the man. He finished the war as a Union general. But by the time he becomes governor of Ohio, he has begun to pull back on black equality. He's untainted by corruption, which will be extremely valuable because Samuel Tilden is running almost entirely on an anti-corruption platform as a Democrat. But Hayes is also bland enough that he will offer no objection to anyone. He is a first-rate, second-rate man. 
both candidates pledged that they would bring Reconstruction to an end. Election night is complete and utter confusion. Even though Tilden won the popular vote, the results from Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana, where African Americans faced severe violent repression, were undetermined. Republicans convinced Southern governments to declare enough votes invalid to swing the Electoral College to Hayes. The Democrats were so outraged by the fact that Tilden was not declared the winner that they began to rally their voters under the slogan, Tilden or Blood. There were real fears of civil war. Grant started to call in troops to guard Washington. He said either party can afford to lose an election, but we as a people cannot afford to have a presidential election that is tainted by false or illegal results. Congress created a bipartisan commission that declared Hayes the winner by one vote. Democrats predictably cried foul. Hayes was referred to as rather fraud v. Hayes. He was called his fraudulency. February, as Inauguration Day neared, the elections still remained undecided. Republicans and Democrats came together and cut a deal. Hayes is inaugurated as President of the United States. It's hard to imagine, in the moment of an election, a party trading a presidential victory, unless it means protecting their way of life. White supremacy is a long-term campaign. It was more important to reinstate that power structure than it was to win the White House. Hayes promises white Southerners that he will leave the South to conduct its own affairs unimpeded and that the Negro problem will be its to solve. These federal troops were stopped enforcing the kinds of reforms that had marked the Reconstruction era. The Southern states had been redeemed. Whoever had been elected, whether it was Hayes or Tilden, black people were going to suffer because Northerners had decided to move on. It was a time of so much hope and so much optimism. The horizon seemed limitless. And then, boom, came redemption. I can only imagine it was the most frustrating thing for Robert Smalls. Here's someone who literally risked his life to be free and devoted himself to creating this new America. And to see that dismantle must have just been horrible. You know, one of his most famous quotes is, my race needs no special defense, Hmm. for the past history of them in this country proves them to be the equal of anyone, anywhere. All they need is an equal shot at the battle of life. From the very beginning, the success of Reconstruction depended on the will of the nation to hold the line against the forces of violence eager to undo it. As the nation's will faltered, the rights of African Americans would be sacrificed to political expediency. After 12 tumultuous years, black people faced an uncertain future. As Frederick Douglass put it, if war among the whites brought peace and liberty to blacks, what will peace among the whites bring? 
Coming up on Reconstruction. It's a set of beliefs, philosophies, attitudes. Race relations hit bottom. The Jim Crow era. Racist stereotypes of African Americans came in all shapes and sizes. New possibilities emerged. Out of the decline came different pathways. While history is rewritten. They still hope, they still believe. What other choice do they have? Reconstruction, America after the Civil War, continues on PBS. documentary on America at the end of the Civil War on PBS. But here is the point that I want to make. If you listened, and you listened very closely, you can see the betrayal, and here it is. They came together to have the peace that was comfortable within the ideology of white America, the South and the North, the Democrats and the Republicans. The corruption was everywhere. And politically, they were competitors. But in the end, where their interests rest, they sacrificed the Reconstruction. If you cannot see that we are now at the end of the Civil War, mightily trying to restore, redeem, a reconstruction in this country, then you might want to go back and revisit. You might want to go back. It's history repeating itself. And I am just so adamant that this is the history that can inform us about what has happened in the last 12 years 
in this country. So we're at this inflection point where we have to talk about what it means to be American and to take care of one another. At the same time, we're grappling with the conversation about police brutality, which is a symptom of a larger system of racism. And so I don't want us to get caught in this notion that if we reform the behaviors of brutality, we have now fixed the problem. I talk about it as reformation and transformation. We are in a nation where reformation is going to have to be a part of what we do. We are not at a place where everyone agrees with the fact that we have to fix everything, but we are at a moment where there is common cause about fixing the most egregious. But we also have to then hold our leaders accountable for making sure there is a transformational conversation that happens at the same time, and we don't allow reformation to displace or overshadow the responsibility of transformation. It's 2020 is just the latest chapter in this book. How did we get to this place where voter suppression, voter disenfranchisement is still a part of the conversation? We have to think about this in two spheres. We have sort of pre-21st century voter suppression and post-21st century voter suppression. From the inception of our country, we had a voter suppression model that was baked into the system. The Constitution is an act of voter suppression. It said that, yes, you have this right to vote, but it then disenfranchised every community except for white men. And even within that, only landed white men were really able to vote. But blacks were not human, Native Americans were not citizens, women were silent, and the 1790 Naturalization Act ensured that nobody else was coming or could, could access the perquisites of citizenship. You fast forward through you know, time and the, the anguish of the Civil War, you get to the 15th Amendment that, yes, gives blacks the right to vote, but it gives black men the right to vote. And what it also does is it devolves, as it always has, it devolves to the states the right to administer elections. And so by the time the Reconstruction has ended, the states have the authority to rescind what the Constitution has given, led by the Mississippi Plan, which basically said, we're no longer going to say you can't vote because you're black. We're going to create all of these other ways to impede the 15th Amendment's adoption. You have the 19th Amendment that gave white women the right to vote, but not, white, not black women. And it wasn't until 18, 1965 that we truly had the right to vote for all people. And even then, there were still impediments for Latinos and Native Americans, and that took the 1975 reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act. So you have this long arc of history, and around 1975, we start to see true engagement. We start to see true evolution. But then we run into 2008, when way too many people of way too many backgrounds decided they deserved to be heard and elected Barack Obama, and that started the 21st century wave of voter suppression. That was when we saw North Carolina eliminate Sunday voting because too many black people used it. We saw states across the country start to cordon off who had access. And then we had the coup de grace, which was the 2013 Voting Rights Act evisceration by the Supreme Court. When that happened, it gave carte blanche to every state that once operated with this ignominious belief that blacks should not be heard. They were able to now use administrative rules and barriers to voting with this you know, semi-facially neutral uh, methodology, but they were able to block the right to vote, and this is how they do it. It is the question that Dr. King so famously uh, titled his final book, Where Do We Go From Here? 
We've had conversations about what the problem looks like, about the many ways that the cancer of racism and systemic oppression uh, metastasizes and manifests in our lives, not just in America, but around the world. So what do we do about it? There are folks who say there a lot of the primaries are already over. There are folks who don't actually trust their local, state, or federal government to create the kind of systems that will keep them safe during voting in a COVID world. There are folks who look at the entire system beyond voting and, again, say, this was never built with me in mind, so I'm just going to disengage. And there are folks who are trying to pull those folks back in but are struggling on exactly how to do that. So where do we go from here? What are the actions that all of us who are watching need to take from this point forward? And now back to Janice. But I ain't got no ain't got no money to and uh, here we are. We sit on March 13th, 2021, in a place where our ancestors, our grandfathers, our great grandfathers, our grandmothers, our aunts, and grand-aunts and grand-uncles sat before. I, I don't know about you, but I often sit and try to, in my head, have a conversation uh, with my parents who were race people, who were race activists, who had hope that I would not be here. I look back on my nearly 50 years as an activist in hopes that my children and my grandchildren would have a sense, a better sense, another space, another place, But if we really, really look at it, it is only the new Confederacy. Thank you for spending your evening with us here at Our Common Ground. Our mission here is to ensure that we contribute to your vision of moving forward. Join us each Saturday night, 10 p.m., as we allow history to inform our future. I'm Janice Graham, encouraging you to trust your struggle. May I ask you to share our common ground with friends and allies each Saturday at 10 p.m. in the Black Truth Sanctuary. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I'll be listening for you. It's true that even as we grieved, we grew, that even as we hurt, we hoped, that even as we tired, we tried, that we'll forever be tied together, victorious, not because we will never again know defeat, but because we will never again sow division. Scripture tells us to envision that everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. 
If we're to live up to our own time, then victory won't lie in the blade, but in all the bridges we've made. That is the promise to Glade, the hill we climb, if only we dare it. Because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. With the fear.